0: Hi, and welcome to Fast Talk Femme with Dee, Dee Barry and Julie Young. In this episode, we are going to discuss how to plan, prepare, and execute big challenges. Our guest on this episode is Lisa Charlebois, a San Francisco-based advertising professional who also loves bikes and successfully completed Paris brest Paris Brevet, otherwise known as PBP, in August of this year. For our listeners who are not familiar with PBP, it's a 1200 kilometer or 750 mile cycling event that was founded in 1891. It was founded as a bicycle race, but the last time that the event was organized as a race was 1951. In 1952, the organizers shifted the event into a Brevet or randonnée format that is held every four years. As in all Brevet events, riders need to be self-sufficient. They're able to buy supplies anywhere along the course, but support by motorized vehicles is prohibited, except at official checkpoints. There's a 90-hour limit, and the clock runs continuously. Many riders sleep as little as possible, sometimes catching a few minutes beside the road before continuing. Some choose to ride as fast as possible, while others ride to enjoy the journey alone or with friends. Absorbing the Countryside and Culture In order to qualify, participants must first complete a series of brevets within the same calendar year as PBP. A brevet series consists of 200 kilometers, 300 kilometers, 400 kilometers, and 600 kilometers. Where once PBP was contested by professional cyclists as a demonstration of the bicycle's potential, today the focus is on the ordinary rider that wants to challenge themselves. Yet a competitive element remains. Despite insistence that it isn't a race, PBP offers trophies and prestige to the first finishers, as well as a best bike and other categories. I had the pleasure of getting to know Lisa Charlebois last winter as she reached out to our team at Mariposa Bicycles in Toronto to build her a custom bicycle for the event. I really enjoy getting to know Lisa through this process and following her progress over the past year. It's evident that she really loves riding her bike and tackling big challenges. In this episode, we'll discuss how Lisa got started in Brevet randonnée cycling events, how she qualified, prepared for, and packed for the PVP, the specifications of her custom bike, and how she fueled en route, and how she successfully completed the event in 78 hours, 27 minutes, and 8 seconds, well within the 90-hour limit. Lisa, welcome to Fast Talk Femme. In The Future of Coaching, which is the last module release of The Craft of Coaching with Joe Friel, we envision what the future of coaching looks
1: like in the years to come. While artificial intelligence will play a critical role, AI will never completely replace coaching. However, leveraging its attributes to find the right balance of personal connection with automated tasks will be vital to remaining relevant with future generations. Check out the Craft of Coaching Module 14
2: at FastTalkLabs.com.
0: Lisa, thank you for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure following your progression as you've prepped for and ridden the PBP this year.
1: Oh my gosh, I am so excited and
0: stoked to be here, so thank you. <laughs> Let's kick off with a little bit about your background. Can you tell our audience about your background, how you got into cycling and Randoner, Brevet-type events?
1: Yeah, for sure. So I'm Canadian and I met my husband when I was in my early 20s and he was a cyclist. And so it was kind of, I think a lot of women can probably resonate with this story of like, you meet a boy, he likes to bike. So I guess I'm going to start biking now. So (laughs) that's kind of how it started. And there was such a great cycling community in Toronto. So La Bicicetta, I got this amazing bike there. Like it just kind of grew from there. And then as my professional career took me to the states sadly i didn't bike much in new york city that was like 4 years without the bike and then los angeles again it doesn't seem like it on paper it would be a good cycling city but it is incredible and so that's again where i just really got deep into biking and the culture and the local scene and then i moved up to san francisco and that's where the rando curious started and so having cycled for a while and always recreationally. And you'd do a big fondo once a year or something like that. But with my husband turning 50 on August 19th and Perry Breast starting August 21st, it was like, this is probably the most, like the raddest 50th birthday we could ever have. So that was it. And so two years before that is when we started prepping and like looking up what randonneuring is and like, how do you even get into PBP and all of this? So it was a pretty steep learning curve, but uh, but it's been a lot of fun. And now I'm like fully indoctrinated into what I like to call the neon army. So randonneurs are all about high viz. And so I kind of like to call them the, the neon army.
2: <laughs> Lisa, it's great to meet you. And uh, thanks for taking time to join us today.
1: Yeah, oh my God, thank you.
2: Yeah. So it sounds like the PBP was put on your bucket list with your husband's birthday. Does that sound about right?
1: Oh, totally. I've heard of it. Like it was one of those like urban legends, but you never actually thought of it. Like nobody wakes up and is like, yeah, I think I'm going to go on a 1200 kilometer bike ride. Like that's not, at least I don't. So having sort of like a monumental birthday sort of crystallized it as something that we're actually going to work towards now.
2: So what draws you to this type of an event? You know, the longer the event, it seems like the more highs and lows we go through physically and mentally, but what draws you to these types of events?
1: I think the coolest part about doing long events is the fact that you are at par with everyone else. Men, women, it doesn't matter. The physical exertion of it is really the same because you're going to be in a zone one for like 19 hours. So- you don't get blown off the back of a peloton, you're still in the group. And I think at least for me as a as a female cyclist, it's really crappy when you go on a group ride and you're instantly dropped and you kind of feel like a bit of a goof. And whereas randoring, I mean, you can hang with those groups for the whole time, so it feels like you're part of the community, you know, part of the the team.
2: Yeah. I think it's interesting because I think these ultra events have grown so much in popularity, whether it's the running or, or riding. And I feel like we learn so much about ourselves in these events. And I feel like for some some of us, like life has become super easy, convenient, kind of soft. And it's like we're drawn to these self-inflicted adversity that we experience through these rides and kind of how we respond to that adversity and seeing how we kind of like mentally can kind of pull ourselves through those lows. But do you feel like you're drawn more to the physical challenge or the mental challenge or both of these events?
1: I think you nailed it. I mean, our lives are pretty chill. Like, you know, sure, you have daily stress and things like that. But, like, you don't have to go and hunt for your food. I mean, we're not doing anything that's so difficult in our days. And I think doing challenges like rando events of, like, two, three, four, six hundred three, four, 600-kilometer rides like that's a hard thing. And so you have to plan for it, you have to train for it, you have to get your head right. And then you're going to go through some pretty dark moments during the ride. At some point, every ride, it's there's a dark moment. So how are you going to rally and get through it? Like I think it's that sort of it sounds masochistic, but it's that challenge that I think I really get stoked about because Again, nothing in my life is that difficult. So yeah, I'd say that's a big part of it. I think the community is also really cool. It's a little different vibe than your local club ride. Like it's a slower pace. You take in the experience more. Like you're you're not just crushing, like, let's go pin it and you know, get this thing over and get coffee. You know, you're gonna stop and you're gonna have lunch and you're gonna sleep for four hours, or sometimes you might nap in a ditch. I mean. There's a lot of crazy stuff that happens, but that's kind of this unique style of
0: riding, and that's what makes it so interesting. Lisa, my father, who was a keen randoner and organized many brevets in Canada, he always felt like it was about the journey more than a race, and he had raced for a long time, but to him, randonneering was more about enjoying the challenge and the experience of a long ride with a group, getting through it as a group and enjoying it. How do you approach the events? Yeah. Some people try to race
1: it. Like to be fair, some people are like full gas, no brakes, just going for it and good for them. I mean, that's fantastic. In fact, on PVP, we saw the dude who set the new record. Like we saw him on the return and this guy was like in the arrow bars, just absolutely crushing it. And that's really cool. Except there's all this other stuff that you miss, right? Like The people on the side of the road or if you're doing your local randonneur event, there's going to be something quirky and different and weird. And you kind of want to be able to take that in. So I think racing it and trying to get a time, it's hard because I think as a competitive person, you want to sort of achieve the goal. But, you know, the time limits are pretty comfortable for the most part. So you should take the full, va- like they call it full value randonneuring sometimes, where you're just like, take the full 90 hours or 84 or, you know, 40, whatever you're working at. So I think your your father-in-law is, is pretty spot on. If you're not sort of stopping to smell the roses a little bit, like you might not be doing it 100% correctly, Yeah. in my humble opinion.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. What events did you do
1: to qualify
0: for a PVP?
1: So- pretty, not strict, but it's pretty well organized on how you get into PPP. So the year before, so we're going to go back into 20, uh, what is it? 21. They take your longest brevet. So it could be a thousand kilometers. It could be 600, 400, et cetera. And that will then be your placement for when you get to register. So 2022, it's your longest brevet. 2023 you have to do a Randonner series. And that's a 200, 300, 400, and 600 kilometer brevet that's sanctioned by the Audux, Parisian, yada, yada, yada. So you can't just go out and like ride your own ride. You have to do the ones by your local clubs. And once those are complete and sanctioned and sent to Paris and validated, then you get to enter. And so because I did the 600 the year before, I completed my series by May, Then I was off to Paris in August and I was in the 84 hour group, the first corral of the 84 hour group. So, so team W. So shout out to my team W (laughs) people that did it
0: with me. So you you ended up finishing well ahead of schedule then if you were in the 84 group and finished at 78 hours. That's impressive.
1: Well, thank you. I mean, I was pretty stoked on it. I'll be honest. I was also like maybe kind of pushing a little, like this sounds mental, but the first I think I was nervous for the first 125 miles, which, again, the numbers are always going to sound wacky, but I was so, like, just anxious about everything, and then, like, I tightened my shoes too tight, and I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to DNF because my shoes aren't working. Like, I was just, like, everything was all, like, screwed up in my head. And so then you kind of chilled out, you kind of breathed into it, and then, you know, I kind of found my groove. But that first day, I think we did a full 12 hours with about 40 minutes of stopping. So we were we were kind of pinning it a little bit. And then once we sort of found our groove, then we sort of chilled out and were like, okay, we can not be such lunatics about this.
0: Yeah, so my father-in-law, he founded the Toronto Randonneers in 1982 with a good friend of his and fellow Brit. He's from the UK, another friend, Mike Brown. And initially when they founded the club, It had a lot of European immigrants and there were very few women in it, but the organization really evolved over the years. And today it's a much more diverse demographic, perhaps reflecting all the progressive changes in larger, at least city cycling communities in North America. But I'd be curious to know, what's the Rannaner community like in San Francisco and in California more generally? Because I know you've spent a lot of time in L.A. as well.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'll use this opportunity to shout out Rob Hawks, who's our RBA. So he's the fella that has sort of really taken the San Francisco Randoners and turned it into this just incredible club. Under his sort of purview and wisdom, he sent over 100 people to PBP this year, which is a massive amount. The club has about 400 people in it. And as far as diversity, I mean, yes, there still aren't like 50-50 men and women on these things. But there's a handful of women, which in those instances feels pretty good. So I think they've done a good job. I think a lot of times people just don't even know this is a thing, right? Like you hear about gravel races and you hear about sort of crits, but I don't think people hear about these long endurance events as much. And so I think if more women actually knew this was a thing, it would be interesting because again, you can compete in air quotes, but you can sort of hang with everybody. It's not as exclusive as maybe some of these other events.
2: Leading up to this, like what what was your training like? And did you work with a coach or did you have specific preparation and training or did you just ride as much as possible?
1: Yeah, no, I w- I definitely had a coach. So I will also shout out Fast Cat athletes, uh, Fast Cat coaching. It was my coach, Allie. She was a uh, ex-pro. And uh, it's funny because <laughs> I'm like, hey, Allie, I want to do this insane thing. And she's like, I don't know how to coach you to this. So then, you know, the mind share of, of the Fast Cat coaching team came together and they actually created a plan that was so epic. Like I had legs the entire time, which I thought at some point I'd fall apart and just be, you know, a puddle of goo. But it was like the last 40K and I have like a bunch of dudes behind me and I'm pulling and I'm like, let's go. And so it was just, it felt so good. So the training leading up to that, I mean, I sort of, I've been working with this coach for about two or three years. So we've been sort of working up and building up endurance, but the stuff they did that was really interesting is they did some simulation rides. So it gets pretty hot in France. And so here in San Francisco, we went up North kind of Santa Rosa, that area. And like I did this weekend where the first day we did 19 hours on the bike, sleep four hours. The second day was 12 hours on the bike sleep four hours, and then 10 hours on the bike, sleep, you know, normal. So it was all about getting used to sleep deprivation and still working. And uh, that worked great, except it was like 110, which as a Canadian, I'm pretty good at Fahrenheit until about 80. And then I just assume everything's like 30. So <laughs> Celsius, like I got to don't compute anymore. And- We're riding it. I'm falling apart. I'm like, oh, geez, I'm not even sweating anymore. I'm just like so hot. Anyway, turns out that's 43. So that's good to know. So that was incredibly hot. But I think that heat training helped a lot in France because it did get up to 104, which I still don't know what that is, but it was hot. And I was like covered in salt. But uh, so a little bit of heat training leading up to it was really helpful. Uh, These simulation weekends that I did, I did a couple of them. We're just getting used to big mileage without sleeping, also super helpful. And then just sort of ramping up my fitness and getting to a CTL that was, you know, for me, like 100, which I've never been at before. But just having all that volume in the legs and being able, and and the butt too. I mean, your hands, your butt, it's the stuff that you don't think is going to fall apart is what falls apart. Like, my legs were fine. Like, I could walk around Paris the next day. Like, it wasn't a problem. But your hands are destroyed, right? Your your undercarriage, your butt, like all of that is just a hot mess. So you kind of, in a weird way, need to train your body, your soft tissue to handle the pain of all this other stuff.
2: Yeah, I think it's interesting when you do these long events, you realize like it's not necessarily your legs that are the limiting factor. It's all those, like your to your point, all those small body parts or the tissues or whatever the case may be. It's an eye-opener,
1: It's not cute, and you might want to edit this out, but I started calling it, like, hamburger. I was like, Uh, (laughs) it's just, like, so (laughs) gross. (laughs) And all of us, at some point, the savagery of the entire event took over, and we're just, like, shamelessly shoving chamois cream down our bibs, and, like, in the middle of, like, a bunch of people. Like, nobody cared anymore. We found um, this stuff called Voltaren, which I think is in Canada, but in, in France. It's, like, liquid Advil, essentially, Very off-label use, but I'm like, screw it. I'm putting Voltaren down there. Like, I'm just, whatever I can to sort of get through this thing. So, uh, yeah, you get very resourceful, I'll say.
2: At what point did you decide to do PBP? And, like, how far out did you start, like, training and specifically preparing for it?
1: Yeah, I'd say a good two years, for sure. So, leading up to that 600, which our 600 that the San Francisco Randoners runs is in May— so, January, like coming off a weight cycle. So, every year I'll do like the off season weights and then I'll sort of ramp back up into volume, get into usually that 600 is like kind of the big event. That was the year before. And then the year of it was really just like more volume than I think I've ever had in my life. So,
2: yeah. And what kind of structured workouts were you doing? I mean, because I'm sure it's more than just doing miles. Like, you want to do those miles efficiently, right? So, what kind of structured work?
1: Totally. I mean, two by 20 sweet spots, like TSS rides of just hitting, you know, like 300 TSS or something crazy, like just sort of moving between you don't do VO2 max. I mean, I wasn't going in that effort, but there would be sort of like more of these sweet spot efforts trying to really just get as much endurance in the legs as possible. And then even during the week, a little bit of like the crisscross intervals, things like that, so that I could sort of just like, well, you guys are the coaches, so you can tell me what that's supposed to do. But I just would would execute whatever she put on the training peaks. I was like, all right, going to work. And that was it. So, yeah, she kept the variety in there for sure, because you're right. You can't just sit on your bike endlessly. I mean, you do have I have a job. I have a life. So,
2: right. It's trying to be leveraging the time you have during the week while you're working, mm-hmm. I'm sure probably some shorter type efforts.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, and even using the group rides that I would do just as like opportunities to sort of like get in a bit of the surge, like pushing the pace a little bit in that instance. So yeah, it, it was, it was helpful. I'm maybe of the personality that I just love being told what to do and just execute. So,
2: And I'm sure I would imagine like those, on those training rides, like you were also training your nutrition as well.
1: Oh my gosh. So I could talk for days about my like love of this stuff we created called hummingbird mix. It's nothing fancy. It's literally sugar, sodium citrate, and like a flavoring powder, like Gatorade or I don't know, country time lemonade or whatever you got. And this stuff is magic. I mean, it's so consistent. I can drink it all day long. There's no issues with it. And on PBP. So I have these like one liter bottles, which look insane, but It's just because you can carry more water that way. And so I would put about 150-ish grams in there. So I would have 75 grams of carbs per hour. And then on top of that, I would, you know, whatever, eat a bar or a gel or something. Because in these long-durance events, it's really tough, at least for me, to, like, eat food the whole time. Like, knowing I have my liquid calories was really comforting. Plus, it was easy to make. I mean, the day before, we hit up, like, a, whatever, Carrefour whatever the grocery store was. I think we bought like eight kilos of sugar. Oh my gosh. So we're like <laughs> taking our eight kilos of sugar in our knapsacks, like back to the apartment to make all our mix. But but yeah, that that stuff to me works great. I think that's where people fall apart on these endurance rides. Like it's just cause they're not eating enough for the yeah. most part.
2: Yeah. And these are totally self-supported, right? Like you basically just pull into any little mini Mart.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah. On PBP, there's control points. So in order for you to, you know, complete the ride, you have a brevet card. And every 80, 100-ish kilometers, there's a control. And so you go in there, they stamp your card, they write down the time. You also have a time chip on your bike, but they're kind of old school. And I think this is kind of like the allure of PBP. You know, a lot of brevets you'll do with your local club, they'll just use your, your computer as your electronic passage. But... Getting in the card. Like, I have my card. I Like, it's so cool. One guy wrote, bravo. Like, <laughs> one, of the, one of the volunteers. I don't know. It's just, it's really neat. So there's food at all the control points. So you don't have to be like me and just, like, drink your food. You can actually go and eat real food there. And we did that in a couple of the controls. But for me, I think one aspect of endurance biking is, like, brain space and eliminating questions. And so for me, like, what am I going to eat is a question that I knew I could easily eliminate and open up a little bit more, you know, I don't know, space for other problems. So yeah. So I just brought all my food with me and that meant I had way too much food. Like I was like, I like could feed half of the Peloton. I was like, who's hungry? Like I got, I got more than enough here. But again, I was just so nervous about like, oh, my gosh, am I going to like eating a ham and cheese croissant? Like, is that going to work for me or not? So I kind of took that route, which, yeah, maybe was slightly paranoid. But
2: yeah, I trained a couple who actually live in California for brevets, and they said you learn to eat well at an a.m. p.m.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. I I think uh, on Instagram, there's a, a guy called gas station cyclist. And he always like showcases all the like horrible gas station food people eat. I'm all about it. Like, I am not above a Twinkie. I mean, at some point, and it's so gross, but you're kind of like this human garbage disposal, and it doesn't matter. Chips, hot dogs, like anything with calories, you're just like, yeah, no, that sounds fantastic. And I will crush a McDonald's meal like nobody's business. And at first, I was like, that's madness, all that fat, oh my gosh. No, it it just like, it incinerates in your body because you're just working. You're not even, you're not working hard, like, you know, at the end of a big interval, but your body is just so in need of calories at that point that you just need to fuel it as best
2: you can. And I think too, like these events, whether it's a stage race or these ultras, you just experience that food fatigue and you just, like you said, really what matters is just getting that food in and whatever form, whatever tastes good, whatever sounds good, just eat it.
1: Yeah. I will say hats off to the French randonneur I saw at McDonald's that ordered a salad and then had a cigarette. (laughs) I don't know what his strategy was, but
2: it looked pretty uh, pretty pro. Oh, God. It's like the vegans eating apple pies at McDonald's. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, my yeah. gosh. Hey, Lisa, tell us about your custom bike, and how did you choose the specifications?
1: Ah, well, I am a big fan of my bike, which is a Mariposa, and I was thrilled to work with Dee and Michael Berry on making this bike. I think... The journey to just even getting the bike was super exciting. I went to Toronto. I got fit. We talked about PBP. This literally was a bike made to do PBP. And now, of course, all my other endurance events. So it's a steel bike with, I'm running Princeton Carbon Works wheels, which are tubeless setup, by the way, which I know maybe some people are like tubeless. But personally, I feel like randonneuring and tubeless is a great move because chances are the punctures you're going to get can probably get sealed up. And it's it's just, again, anything to stop the like annoying stuff that's going to take your time away. I lean to that. So steel bike, Princeton Carbon Works wheels. Uh, I have a Dynamo hub in the front wheel. So that's a Sun Dynamo, which I met the founder of Sun Dynamo at PBP, which was pretty cool. So people were really stoked on this bike. Like you should have seen it. People would like come by and take pictures of the bike and they'd like move my husband's bike out of the way and then take (laughs) pictures of my bike, which is really cool. It's a NV sort of cockpit, NV handlebars. We're looking at an NV seat post. I use a Thorn saddle, which for me works great. I'm a huge fan of that saddle. And then it's a Dura-Ace Di2 drivetrain. I don't know, Didi, tell me all the things I'm forgetting about. (laughs)
0: Yeah. So first of all, it was super fun working with you on this. We've had a number of customers do Paris Breast Paris over the years. So it wasn't our first time building a custom bike for the event. But I think a couple of the key things were building the bike as lightweight as possible without kind of sacrificing comfort. So we built it with Kasai tubing, which is a super lightweight deal tubing made in Japan. And then we put a carbon fork on it. A lot of the difference in weight between a carbon bike and a steel bike is actually in the fork crown and the steer tube. So when you put a carbon fork on a steel bike, you're sort of getting the best of both worlds. You're getting a lightweight bike that actually absorbs a lot of the vibration of the road. So it's really comfortable to ride over a long period of time. And then for PVP in particular, because you ride through the night and potentially in rain, having hub-generated lighting system is key. And then a big thing was, you know, we set the bike up, with fenders, but with the option to take them off easily so that if, if the weather was good enough to where you didn't think you were going to need the fenders, you didn't have to ride with them. It wasn't going to slow you down because, you know, obviously there's a- additional wind drag with fenders, so you don't really want to use them if you don't have to. So those were a couple other key features of the bike. And then and then the paint job was all about Lisa and what she <laughs> what she wanted, which might be why everybody was taking pictures of your bike. Oh, oh, well. Yeah, but coming back to the Princeton wheels, you know, we suggested the Princeton wheels just because they handle so well in the crosswinds. That region of France has a lot of crosswinds, but they're also incredibly aerodynamic fast wheels. And so the wheels obviously really affect both the handling of the bike and the speed you can you can ride at. So those are just a, a few additional features that we thought were important. Oh my gosh. And at it was so cool. At one point, I'm like, so there was
1: a bag drop that I used. So they, they did a bag drop in Ludiak, which is the first kind of town that you stop at 270 miles out. And uh, I'm bringing my bag to the bag drop. And the guy's like, oh, oh, you got a Mariposa? Oh, oh, you know what you're doing. And I was like, oh, geez, I hope so. I don't know. So <laughs> it was very well-respected in the the world of rando. And, and that's why specifically, again, as a Canadian, it felt like a little piece of home was with me too. So I was really keen on getting this bike built for PVP because I haven't been doing this to the same extent that Didi and, and Michael have. So it was nice to have professionals telling me how I can uh, have a great ride. So And it was great, and it came through clutch.
2: It's so great to have experts like Didi and Michael just filtering all the information because there's so many options out there now.
1: Yeah, and my husband he, you know, used a sort of a, a gravel bike as his bike but it didn't have uh, a dynamo in it and I think by the end he's like, "Yeah, this is kind of irritating." You know, again, that brain space idea. He's like, "Oh, I got to charge my lights and change the batteries." And just it's like another level of annoyance that you just can eliminate. Yeah. There are more female athletes in endurance sports than ever before. Yet until recently, female athletes simply followed advice and protocols that have been designed and tested on men. This is rapidly changing and in our newest release from The Craft of Coaching with Joe Friel, we explore the art and science behind coaching female athletes with expert insights and advice from the likes of Dr. Stacy Sims, Alison Freeman, and Lauren Valet,
2: check out the Craft Coaching Module Twelve: Coaching Female Athletes at Fast Talk Labs today. Once you had your bike, did you get it fitted?
1: Oh yeah, no, I did a three D bike fit here in San Francisco. So uh, again, uh, they've done bike fits for me in the past, and it was funny because I went there, and he was sort of like, uh, "Yeah, there's not much to do here. It's perfect." And so I was like, "Oh, okay," and he like moved the handlebars a bit. And that was it. He's like, whoever built this, they did a great job. So again, another shout out to Mariposa. It was awesome. So yeah, it was really more just like, you know, making sure my saddle was in the right spot and adjusting my handlebars a little bit. Because again, like your hands, I can't, ugh, I can't sort of like downplay how much your hands kind of end up hurting on the end of this thing. And it doesn't matter, double, triple up the bar tape. I mean, it's just one of those things you have to embrace. It's going to suck.
2: You alluded to this, but have some athletes I train for gravel events and, like, ultra gravel events and multi-day, and they just really struggle with finding that good combination of saddle and short chamois, like, combination. And I was wondering, again, I, I know you alluded to this about kind of just dealing with that in the event, but, like, during training, did you find, like, what was your kind of magic there to find that combination
1: Oh yeah. I think the saddle slash chamois marriage is one that takes a lot of trial and error. At least it did for me. So um, I went through all sorts of different bibs and whatnot, and I kind of came down to the Pondermal escapism line. I-, I liked the fact that it had the little cargo, pant- like cargo pockets on the side. The chamois was actually really thin, which felt really good. And then the uh, Azos, I don't know, Azos has all those weird numbers. Anyways, the Azos women's line of bib shorts, and um, those work great. So I did change my shorts every day, I would say. Like, don't compromise. If you're doing a rando event, please bring another set of like kit. It will help you immensely. But yeah, so that that worked well for me. And then it's just the Azos chamois cream. I use that. I also found this stuff that the, I guess it was the British cycling team uses called double base gel. And it's actually like an emollient cream, but they use it sort of like a chamois cream. So I got to this like special sauce where I was like, okay, I'll put on my double base gel as like the prep and then I'll put on my chamois cream. And that's sort of how like we optimized as best we could on the, uh, the undercarriage one could say.
2: <laughs> it seems like with the shorts, like the chamois that are, smooth, don't have any sort of seams. I think the seams can be a a real problem.
1: Oh, gosh, yeah. No, I mean, yeah, that's why those Azos ones and the Ponermal ones seem to work really well. Also, I'm not a big fan of the like diaper chamois, like the ones that are really thick, like that doesn't feel great. But again, it's such a personal thing. Like people will ask and be like, well, what do you use and what do you like? And so I, I think sadly for me, I just had to like go out and spend a lot of money on a lot of different bibs and see what worked
2: trial and error. Mm -hmm. And what was the saddle you ended up using? Yeah, it's
1: a Thorn GS something or other saddle. And uh, I think it's a smaller company. I think it's based in California, but um, it's just a bit of a wider, it's almost like a a specialized power saddle, kind of the same shape, a little wider on my sit bones for me and uh, has that cut out in the middle and, and a little bit of cushion, like just a scooch. So it actually feels really comfy.
2: How did you pack for this event? I mean, I would imagine it's obviously impossible to predict weather, but how did you pack? I know you said you brought all your food, you brought a couple items of clothing or changes. I mean, like, yes, sleeping stuff. Like what all did you bring?
1: I'll walk through it in somewhat, not painful, but in detail. So what I ended up having was I had I had a little mini frame bag. It's kind of funny. You can see pictures of my bike on Instagram. And it's like this tiny little triangle in the front because that's all I could fit with my one liter bottles. But that's kind of like my, my pharmacy. So that's where I have like Tums and Advil and Benadryl. So Advil, I mean, if you start to get kind of sore, a little Advil takes the edge off. And then Tums, like if your gut starts to get weird, that's super, super helpful. I had all my lotions in there, so I had my chamois cream, my gel, double-base gel, all of that, sunscreen, eye mask, space blanket, because at some point you're going to nap in a ditch, so the space blanket was the move. I bring a tiny little bottle of chain oil with me because we don't wax our chains. It doesn't last long enough for the rides that we're doing, so chain oil at, like, kilometer 800, we would sort of relube our chains, and then all my cables— so my cables for my power bank and that were in this little frame bag. In the front, I had a small saddle bag that was just filled with sugar. So it looked like something out of like a cocaine deal. It was just this like bag of sugar in the front. <laughs> <laughs> and then I had a top tube bag um, and that was filled with my power bank and then like extra, you know, gels or whatever kind of I was munching on at the time. And on the back, I had uh, an Apodura. Oh, I should say the custom frame bag and the top tube bag is made by this guy in Oklahoma City called Steadyco, And it's like he makes like kind of cute looking bags. So I sent him a picture of my bike and I was like, I don't know, do something cool. And he sent me back these like beautiful bags. And he's an independent dude, so check him out. And then the back bag was uh, Apodura, a 17 liter Apodura seat bag. And um, it's always tough. You know, I think women's bikes, they're just smaller. It's really hard to get a lot in a frame bag. So I had to use a seat bag. I, I'm not a fan of it just because of the weight and the feel of it, but I strapped it down as best I could. And in that I had a Rafa down jacket, which I know sounds insane, but it gets really cold at night, or I was told it gets really cold at night. It didn't on my PBP. It was actually very pleasant like 12 degrees, but um, I had that just in case. I had a full thing of wet weather gear. So rain pants, overshoes. I didn't want to take rain gloves, so I took surgical gloves. And I would put those in my normal riding gloves if I needed it. A rain cap and some rain socks is what I had. Oh, and some arms as well. So, And then on my third bottle cage, that's where I put my little garage. So my toolkit. And in the toolkit was all the normal tools and stuff you have except I also took a spare derailleur hanger in case cuz I didn't want that to like end my ride. Some bungee cord, like a little mini bungee cord, dynaplug, uh quick link, again, all the sort of things that you just normally take with you, so.
2: I bet you that was a real like work in progress over your preparation, just these like simulation rides you did just continuing to ty- kind of fine tune things. Oh my gosh. And
1: yeah, like figuring out what works, what doesn't, what did I need? What did I forget? Um, oh, the DI2 cord. So I did this simulation ride. This was tragic. So I didn't bring my DI2 cord with me and we're biking like, I don't know, seven, 800 kilometers in a weekend. And of course my DI2 dies. And I was like, oh, cool. I should probably charge this. And so that was like, even though it was annoying at the moment, I went to a bike store, we got it all sorted out. But like, that was that had to happen for me on PBP to know every night I'm gonna charge this thing, even though I know it has like a thousand kilometer range. But like this is the peace of mind I need, so I actually took my DI two cord with me just in case. But um, but yeah, I charged it every night. It was totally fine. I'm a huge fan of electronic shifting because again, it's just less work on your hands and super simple. And I mean, it's amazing. So
2: I'd be curious to know. Like I'm assuming you probably rode with your husband.
1: Yeah. I had a rule. I'm like, you can't ditch me and I can't ditch you. So that's <laughs> the
2: only. Like, we got to stay
1: together. Everything else yeah. I don't care, but you know, yeah.
2: And then I'm assuming, did you guys kind of team up with others along the way or was it just kind of come and go?
1: Yeah, no, it's wild. I guess the best was someone described it as like burning man on bikes. Like it's just, there's 180 different countries represented, all these different people. And so as you're riding, you meet so many different individuals and you get into these. At one point, we had like a 30-person like Peloton. Like it was almost too oh, wow. big. Like, yeah, it was wild. And so you'd get a pull, and you'd, I mean, sometimes I'll be honest, randoners aren't the greatest group riders, because a lot of times they just ride on their own for like 600 kilometers. So you kind of had to encourage some of the people to be like, no, no, it's your turn for a pull. Like, I'm not doing this all day. You need to now do this. But yeah, we got this like amazing group that just sort of worked together for, I don't know how many miles at that point. And it's nice too, like when you're riding at night, it's nice to be in a group to talk with someone. I think that's something else that if you're not used to riding at night, it can feel kind of a little bit nerve wracking. But to, to shake that up, I mean, talk to the person next to you, just sort of like, I don't know, I played some music. I have like this little clip-on speaker on my jersey that I would play, and that would be a nice way to like break up the monotony of the evening, so.
2: Yeah, and speaking of the evening, how was it to to ride at night? Like, again, did it take some time to dial in the right lighting equipment for yourself?
1: I mean, Didi had it on lock. It was great. Dynamo worked like a charm. Lights were awesome. So there was no problem there. I have that Edelux light and it's super bright. It's fantastic. And then as far as like the vibe, I mean, I, I think it was really just, well, I, I should say the roads in France or at least in that part of France were so smooth. Usually California, when you're riding at night, you're like kind of a little... Reticent, Like you're always slower because you don't really know the road surface in front of you and you're just kind of being a little more cautious. There, I mean, it was like you were riding during the day. Like you had so much confidence in the road ahead of you that you really didn't kind of pull back. So that was incredible. The stars, the landscape. At one point, we had this huge group we were going into on the last or third day. It gets real fuzzy by the end. It's just day, like the endless day. And so there was like, again, a huge group of us and there was this German dude next to me and I started playing Daft Punk because I mean, we're in France, like it's a bit of a vibe. It felt like we were in a video game, like everyone's lights playing on the landscape. And the second the song changed from one to the next and there's like a bit of a break in the music, the dude next to me is like, where's the music? And I'm like, okay, okay, it's gonna be all right, you know? So uh, so yeah, the night riding there was super fun and um Yeah, it's probably like the greatest night riding I've ever done.
2: How was the weather for you? Like, were you dealing with any rain, wind?
1: No, I mean, it got pretty hot. Day one, like I said, it went up to like 104. And it would get hot like 3 o'clock to 5. Like, it was kind of later. So that was kind of gross. Nighttime, it would go down to like, uh, I don't know, 10 degrees Celsius or something like that. It wasn't that bad. I mean, I'm used to San Francisco weather, which is... Kind of like perpetually cold. So it felt great. Some of the folks from Southeast Asia were definitely not feeling it. They were like freaking out. So the Northern Europeans couldn't hang in the heat. And then the South Asian folks couldn't hang in the cold. So you kind of saw all the different riders like trying to figure out what they were going to wear. But yeah, no, there was no rain. There was rain for like a little bit on the last day, which I felt like was just bound to happen at some point. But it wasn't anything you couldn't manage. So yeah, I didn't use fenders on the ride because
2: it was pretty much clear skies. And the wind was pretty mild. Yeah, I mean, there's some
1: parts where it's pretty exposed, so you can get some kind of gross headwinds. And, you know, like those dark moments in a ride where it just gets a little bit grindy, but you know it's not going to last forever. And so we'd sort of just like, Rich and I would work together and sort of like try to like just help each other out through the wind, taking pulls and stuff.
2: Yeah, that's massive. How much did you sleep and and where did you sleep? And I'm just kind of wondering as I'm listening to you, like if it's super hot and you do better in the evening, like I was wondering, did you plan your sleep during the hotter part of the day and then try to ride through the night or how did you do that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a strategy that I would think about for the next time. So spoiler alert, I'm totally doing this again. So It's amazing. (laughs) But yeah, no, I think that's definitely something to think about because you kind of have to figure out how you want to use your time, you know, this time not understanding even I've never even done a 1200 K brevet before. So all of this was new, not only just we're in another country, it's like everything's new. So for us, it was just we had a hotel in Ludiak. So like I said, that first day was a big first day, 270 miles we stayed in a hotel that we got and uh, we slept about four hours. The second day we go from Ludiak to Brest and then back to Ludiak. And that, uh, we slept three hours. And then the last day, which just turns into endless day, that goes from Wednesday kind of spilling into Thursday. That's where we slept about 90 minutes around 1230. I guess that's technically Thursday morning on the side of the road somewhere. And that was it. So that's how much we slept, which again is kind of gnarly. But uh, we could have probably afforded more sleep. Like at 70 out, 78 hours, and I have an 84 time limit. Like now, I was a bit nervous, thinking like, "Oh gosh, we got to make our time." And now I know I probably could have afforded a few more hours of sleep.
0: Yeah, that's serious
1: sleep deprivation,
0: though. Yeah. <laughs> Did it affect your bike handling?
1: No, I mean we were totally fine. Like, that's the weird part is like, you get into this mode where your life becomes incredibly simple. You get up, you eat and you ride your bike and that's it. You don't look at the news. You don't really text your friends. You just sort of go into this like different mode of working. And that's your life now for the next three or four days. That's what you're going to do. And so, you know, we would, we would rest. I mean, we'd stop and eat I think that that was really important just to take some time off the bike. Like, I sleep hard. Like, those four hours were deep. Like, I was deep in sleep. But, you know, even sitting and eating my lunch, you're not on the bike. And that felt good, too. So you might not be, like, sleeping, but you're resting.
0: What were the biggest differences you noted culturally between riding a Brevet in Europe versus the U.S.? Oh, gosh. I mean, the French
1: people are absolute gems. I mean. I couldn't believe, and I think people told me that there's folks at the side of the road cheering and that, but I didn't really, I thought like, oh, sure, it's going to be like five people clapping or something. It was beyond, like there was just every corner of this route, and you're out in the boonies at some point, and there's, there's like an old grandma who's there clapping at like one in the morning. I couldn't get over the support. It was just it was wild. And I mean, the ability of people to help you out, like I heard these stories where people would be like, oh, geez, I have to use the bathroom. They'd be like, come to my house. Like, come on in, whatever you need, you know, and giving you food at the side of the road. So folks in California are great too. Don't get me wrong. I mean, if you're in a jam on a Brevet, they'll, they'll help you out, but it's just the, the vibe. I think that's the game changer in this whole thing.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. That was definitely our experience with racing too. Just the amount of kind of moral support um, alongside the road was amazing. So tell me, what was the highlight or best moment of the event for you?
1: I'd say the best moment was, uh, there was a town called Sizun, which was kind of like around a corner and you it's like very dramatic, like you turn a corner. And by the way, these towns are like straight out of Asterix and Obelix. Like it's like these crazy medieval looking towns with like the big towers and whatnot. And so we turn this corner and it's like the whole town came out. Like, there was at least a, a couple hundred people cheering. I've never heard people cheer, well, at least for me on a bike, that's for sure. <laughs> like, I've never had, you know, I've never won a stage of anything in my life. But it felt like you achieved this incredible thing. And so, I, like, we all got goosebumps and we were just totally freaking out. And I think that's a memory that'll stick with me for a very, very long time. That's awesome. What was the worst moment, en route? Well, there was a few. <laughs> so— I'd say there's some really grindy parts, like the last, and I know it's only 15 miles or whatnot, but man, those were dark, gross 15 miles from going into Ludiac, so at the end of the first day, and uh, there was this German fella named Martin, which by the way, I don't know what happened, but every German man that I met was named Martin, so Martin won, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he was uh, he was like, oh man, I'm having a bit of a rough ride. Can I ride with you guys? And that actually, just that small moment lifted us so much because you're like, oh, oh, I'm not alone. You're suffering too? Oh, that's cool. Like, let's all suffer together. And so we didn't talk. Like, it's not like we had these long, deep conversations, but just knowing that we were together, grinding it out, that really lifted the spirits in kind of a cruddy moment. Yeah,
0: camaraderie is a good thing. What was the most interesting thing you saw on route? Like, did you see any interesting architecture? Like, what really stood out for you? Oh, man. There was like, it's just
1: like, you know, again, as an amateur cyclist, it kind of feels like the Tour de France, like all the crazy road art that they would do. It was just like watching the tour. There'd be like hay bales, made of people and it'd say like, congratulations riders, or there'd be like these goofy signs and weird looking kind of bike contraption things. Every town went full out for this thing. Like it was like decorated. There was different towns that would have like all sorts of bands playing and stuff just to like keep the party vibe going. So I think seeing that was really cool. Like seeing the enthusiasm around this event definitely stood out.
0: Were there any interesting characters you met en route?
1: There was a few. I don't know that it stood out for a good reason, but uh, there's this thing called Shermer's neck, which I didn't even know was a thing. But apparently on these long events, your neck muscles stop working. And so all of a sudden these people are riding and their head is down, like staring at the ground. So I saw this one woman. Wow. It was two poles were stuck in her jersey and a tire tube was, was tied around her forehead. And she was riding like that. And I was like, oh, no, that's that's not great. Oh, my God. There was a dude who had, like, the classic baguette in his, like, pocket. So we got to talking to him. And he turned into Tom Dupin for us. So that was his new nickname. And, uh, I mean, there was just, like, all sorts of... Oh, there were these crazy little bikes that were, like... Uh, we called them the low boys, but... They look like these little rockets. I don't know what the actual term for them is. But anyways, there was a bunch of those, these like weird looking space bikes. So yeah, endless things that were definitely unique.
2: So Lisa, now that the news is out and we've learned that you are doing PBP again, is there anything you would do differently when you tackle it again?
1: I think so. Well, first off, I'll try to be way less uptight. Like, I think I was so nervous about finishing and finishing in time and, you know, not smelling the roses as much as I normally would on a on a Brevet. I think, I think that's the first thing, yeah, that I really kind of need to like sort of relax. Don't take as much food as I did. Cause again, like I was feeding everybody. It was kind of silly. Yeah, I, I think trying to optimize for a little bit more sleep. I mean, I functioned well, I felt good, but you know, I wouldn't say no to like, another two or three hours of sleep, I mean, that'd be amazing, so.
2: It's interesting when you watch these events like Tour Divide and you see that strategy with sleep and how some people are really trying to cut corners on it and then it just seems that it oftentimes comes back to bite them at the end versus the people that have been kind of more patient, more diligent with their sleep and kind of just stay steady and actually get stronger through the event.
1: Oh, for sure. You know, I think as a randonner, you kind of have to embrace the sleep deprivation a little bit. Like, it's just the nature of the events, but optimizing to have more sleep on the ride, that's fantastic. Or at least just more rest. Like if you can't sleep, just like get off the bike for 20 minutes and eat something and just like sort of take a pause is is really, really helpful.
2: Yeah. And so Paris Breast Paris is every four years, right? Yes. So you have some time in preparation for that next event. So in the meantime, what's next for you? Oh man, like now now I'm in, like I'm
1: deep in the club, you know, so it was funny, you know, I'm sure you folks could relate when you come back from a big event, like two years, like I've been working towards this thing and I was kind of bummed out. And so the hunt started right away. So the next event is gonna be, hopefully I can get in, but it will be the Midnight Sun Randonet in Sweden. So it's a 1200K Brevet and it starts six hours North of Stockholm. And so you're like way up there. And then you're going to go from Umema. Sorry if I'm mispronouncing that. So you go from this little town, you go north, you go through the Arctic Circle, you come back down through Norway, and then you come back to the start. So I'm super stoked. I think it's going to be really cool. The other really exciting part is it's around June 16th. So it's like 23 hour sun. So it's just going to be a crazy event. And uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it.
0: That sounds amazing. Wow.
1: Yeah. I mean, maybe I won't even take the dynamo. I won't even need the lights. I don't know.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Do gravel events appeal to you at all? Like the ultra gravel events and the bike packing? No, it's a hard no. Yep. <laughs> Not at
1: all. No, I, I think they're cool. I just think that in the ultra endurance sort of space, like adding gravel on top of it is, oh, that's like a whole other dimension, you know? Like all the things that can go wrong just on the rides that we do, which by the way, I didn't have any mechanicals, any crashes, like nothing happened, which was amazing. But on a gravel event, like that just goes up exponentially in my eyes. And so hats off to the folks that do the ultra endurance gravel stuff. I think they're like, superhuman individuals.
2: Yeah, you're right about that. I mean, but what you do too, same thing, but you're right, like just you add more factors into the mix. Yeah,
1: and I think I'd have to get a lot more confident and like, because again, Randon A's, you're a self-supported, like you have to fix your own stuff but I'd probably have to learn how to be like a low-key bike mechanic to figure
2: out the stuff that goes wrong on those gravel events. I don't know. Just MacGyvering everything.
1: Yeah, I I do not have that skill set. Zero.
2: No, no. no. So Lisa, for our listeners who might be interested in tackling PBP or another ultra endurance event, can you provide your top three pieces of advice?
1: For sure. So I'm actually going to give my three pieces of advice and then Specifically, I'm going to give two pieces of advice that I got on PVP. So for ultra rides in general, my advice is train hard so you can ride easy. So put a lot of effort into the training. I think be serious with the training, make it fun. But training hard means you get to enjoy the event and not be just dragging yourself through it. I think the next thing is your nutrition. I mean, getting really serious about what you can eat on the bike. I would always advocate for McDonald's. So if McDonald's wants to sponsor me, I'm a thousand percent into it. So (laughs) that would be great. But no, I think getting your nutrition right and finding something that sits well with you is is gonna go the distance and, and help you in your confidence even riding. And then I think the last thing is comfort, like figuring out that right mix of you and your bike, right? So is it the right bibs to saddle, to chamois, to whatnot? figuring out how you can optimize your bike to feel comfortable. So yeah, so I would say that goes into training, nutrition, and comfort. And then on the ride, so specifically for PBP, we met this guy who was from Florida, so we started calling him Florida Man. So Florida Man said that the ride starts in Ludiac, which I thought was very good advice. Everyone blew themselves up on day one. All the climbing essentially is in day two. So don't go crazy on the first day. The ride starts in Ludiak And the last piece of advice I think you could use for any rando event is nothing good happens on the bike between 2 and 4 a.m. So you think, oh yeah, I'm just going to ride through the night. This will be fine. Use that time to rest because chances are that's where really bad decisions get made. So um, that's definitely worth keeping in mind. So there you go. Lots of advice, but... Uh, you know, it, was, it was a lot of writing, so there's a lot to talk about.
2: Yeah, I really like that your first piece of advice to training to do it well and just maximize the experience? Because I feel like sometimes people are just so bound and determined, like just take it off their bucket list. And it's just like survival, you know? And I think, gosh, this is kind of sometimes a once in a lifetime opportunity. And like, I just think about all the things you were describing, those incredible just moments throughout the ride, like when you guys all at night with your lights, but I mean, just being able to enjoy all that versus just surviving it.
1: Oh, for sure. Like, We trained two years to get here, you know? Like we were very dedicated about it so that we could enjoy the experience. I mean, we were in France, we're like in this insane bike event with all this history. You just don't wanna be that person that's like sort of suffering. I think we took a lot of gratitude into it too. Like whenever you started to feel really kind of low, it was like, oh wow, I get to be here. I get to do this. This is really remarkable.
2: Right. I think that's a huge one. Get versus have to.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Yeah. for sure.
2: Yeah. Well, Lisa, thank you so much. And for listeners, Lisa's videos from Paris Breast Paris on, on Instagram are amazing. And Lisa's handle on Instagram is hustle and a half, all written out.
0: Lisa, you exude all kinds of good energy. And I really appreciate you joining us today and sharing your experience and your wisdom. And I wish you all the luck in your future endeavors. This is amazing.
1: I, I, I really appreciate you asking me here. Thanks, everybody.
0: Yeah, Lisa, thanks. It was great to meet you. That was another episode of Fast Talk Femme. Subscribe to Fast Talk Femme wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk Femme are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback and any thoughts you have on topics or guests that may be of interest for you. Get in touch via social. You can find Fast Talk Labs on Twitter and Instagram at Fast Talk Labs, where you'll also find all our other episodes. You can also check them out on the web at FastTalkLabs.com. For Lisa Charlebois and Julie Young, I'm Didi Dee Dee Berry. Thank you for listening.